Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Support for this episode is brought to you by Chirpy Bird Health IT Consulting. The 2020 MIPS Manual is out now on Amazon, and it's a great resource for practice administrators and clinicians who need to keep up with the changing healthcare laws. Welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast, where with each episode, we hear from different women experts in the health IT industry. We like to hear about what makes them tick, how they overcome challenges, work they're proud of, advice they would give to other women in health IT, and much more. I'm Joy Rios. And I'm Robin Roberts. Today, we're talking with Corinne Straum. She's the Director of Product, Utilization, and Cost for Kenzai. She's also a subject matter expert in data science, population health, and machine learning. She's so smart. We learned a lot in our conversation with her, and we think you will too. So let's get started. I am Corinne Strom. I'm Director of Product for the Utilization and Cost Portfolio at Kensai. Kensai is a machine learning platform and solution vendor in the health IT space. And so primarily, I work with what I would consider to be three pillars in healthcare administration, utilization, and cost. There's the tools that we might offer to a provider organization or a health system, the tools that sit sort of in the middle in that what we call payvider, so accountable care organizations, employee health plans, at-risk provider organizations. And then there's the more traditional health plan, Medicare Advantage type solutions as well. So in the product world, I sort of sit between our data scientists, our software engineers, and our data visualization engineers to determine the shape of the ultimate product that we would like to give um, to our users. And our work is machine learning based, meaning it either anchors on predictions or it anchors on signals that are identified by machine learning algorithms with some augmentation or some shaping from clinicians. Corinne, how did you get into this line of work? Great question. So I studied biomedical and electrical engineering in school, and I was really passionate about this interface between humans and machines and how we could improve human health through technology. Uh, My education was very focused on how to model the human body as a system with parallels to mechanical systems, electrical systems, chemical systems, et cetera. So some of my favorite work was around things like modeling electrical impulses as though they were circuits. And that was where I focused. But what I found is that 
as I entered industry, it felt very disjoint from the end application. I was working on things like submitting devices to the FDA, and we were creating reams and reams of papers and documentation to ensure that our device was safe and effective. But then we'd go into silence while we awaited our approval. On the other hand, when I worked in a clinical research lab, I did feel very hands-on. It was wet work, but I felt too like it could be years before the research that we're doing becomes a viable drug. And then I did also work as a a technician in the hospital, and I was working on a one-to-one basis with patients and maybe up to five patients at a time with intraaortic balloon pumps. And again, what I was seeing was this theme. I wanted things to move quickly, and I wanted things to move at scale. Now, I was fortunate to graduate and finish my master's in the post-ACA world when there was a significant investment in software and in understanding at scale how we could attend to populations. And so at that time, I made the leap into population health, um, healthcare analytics, care management, and I went full force into the world of MACRA, PQRS, et cetera. What I found along the way, so I spent about six years at a vendor working in that space to land tools around quality reporting. And again, there were some drawbacks there. I loved the work that I did, and I felt like finally here I was attending to a large set of at-risk lives, so members or patients, depending on whose perspective you were taking, who were in need of monitoring. And what we were doing was ensuring that they were getting appropriate evidence-based care. But we were sort of depending on them to fail. You find your opportunities by looking at process measures that aren't being successfully completed. So not only were we asking for someone to check the box without looking at what the impact was on the health of their population, we also waited for that box to go unchecked before we reported that. So what I I did about two and a half years ago is I made a switch into predictive analytics. And so instead of asking the question, which physicians aren't, let's say, following up on out-of-range A1Cs, the real question is, who's out-of-range A1C over time marks a transition from managed diabetes to unmanaged diabetes? And it poses a very different sort of clinical ethical question. And I've really enjoyed being in this space for the last two years of using the best technologies in machine learning to anticipate the trajectory of a particular patient for a condition, for expenditures, for any sort of facet of care. And so now I'm moving into 10 years in software, eight and a half of which have been in the healthcare IT space. And I continue to be grateful every day for the chance to work where I do. You know, uh, you mentioned that those process measures, it's been interesting to see the evolution over time that there's been less focus on process or structural measures, but more on outcome or intermediate outcome. So it must be really interesting and rewarding on your side of things to kind of see like to see that change and also be a little bit more hands on in really trying to like measure the health of a patient, not just, you know, the system that's in place or the buttons that were clicked. That's right. I've enjoyed seeing the shift towards outcomes. And then you, you know, again, there's drawbacks. Every time I say, oh, there's a path that we could be taking, there's an optimization, there's an enhanced experience. There's always this, oh, but just know the dangers that come with that. And so when I look, for example, at experience or patient-reported outcomes, you have this sort of Yelp effect of extremely polar results. You've already biased your results by 
looking at only the members who choose to respond. And so if you look at things like CAPS, if you look at things like Yelp, someone actually pointed me to a study, which I find really funny, that the Yelp reviews for a hospital actually tend to track very well with the HCAPS for that hospital as well, which tells us that we can introduce all of this rigor around how we want to measure the eventual impact on satisfaction to the patient or the caregiver, but that it's just as uh, sound as what they will enter when they go drop in a, a star rating on Yelp. I do like outcomes in that it does help us to get a better sort of barometer on, on how the patient is progressing, but it is worrisome that they can oftentimes take 6, 12, 18 months to really feel like you're getting the right story. And then if you try and redirect, now you're all of a sudden introducing another lag. So, okay, we see that this person is likely to go somewhere in the next 6 to 18 months, or we've monitored that this is the change that has happened. Now, if we try and redirect, the impact of that can also take a few months. So, process measures were good in that they were timely, but outcome measures can be difficult in that they now have a lag and a reset period. Corinne, can you give our listeners, you know, help distill some of the complexity. Can you give us some real-life examples of what your clients are doing on where that human component or the delivery of care is meeting machine learning? Absolutely. So most listeners are probably familiar with the concept of risk stratification. So just, I always like the, the visual of stratification is very fulfilling to me. This notion that I am building layer upon layer of a population and understanding how each band is composed. And it's sort of like an archaeological or geological term where we're thinking about bands within a larger height. And so what we tend to focus a lot on is the use cases around predicting something that is likely to happen to someone in the next X months. So the classic example and the one that usually onboards someone into a healthcare machine learning use case is at time of discharge, how likely is this person to readmit in the next 30 days? Now, it's one thing to give a score. Let's say it's either a zero or one, or maybe it's a scale of zero to 100. That generally isn't enough. And what we're finding is that one of the principles here is what we at Kensai called explainability. So we need a user to understand why we are making the assessment that we're making. There are all these ethical hazards in the work that we do in that, you know, you don't want to bias the user to only attend to certain populations or to certain patients in your risk strata, but you also want them to understand what composes that strata and why you put someone where you did. In doing so, you can show them the, the biases and the blind spots in your modeling. So it could be that through the purpose of explaining, here's why we think this person is at risk, you expose to the user but we don't know anything about the drugs that they were taking at the time of discharge. Or you might even say, here's what we didn't know about this person because we've never seen a person like this. Or this person had a very long inpatient stay and that, that could have skewed the risk of readmission because they were pending discharge to a skilled nursing facility and that sort of prolongs their stay. So explainability helps to ensure that when you're, you're offering a risk score, you explain the factors behind it. And explainability can have sort of two, I guess, vectors. There's the global explainer, which is on the whole for the population, how do we understand inherent risk factors? And then there's also the 
for this particular person, what was most associated with their risk. Explainability, we have to caution, is not the same as causality. We cannot say that the reason this person is likely to be readmitted is because of use of corticosteroids. But instead, what we're trying to say is the reason why the sort of the risk factor that we believe is associated with this person's risk is use of behavioral health medications. And then it's kind of up to that user to use clinical judgment and understand why that might be the case. So you kind of walk through this judgment process of, well, the model tells me that behavioral health medications are associated with this person's risk. Well, that probably tells me something about the conditions associated with this member and that member's capacity for self-management. And now I'm getting a better impression of what could be driving that risk. So I have to be very careful that when I talk about sort of these predictive models that it's not causal, it's not perfect, and it's doing the best that it can on what it's learned from. But if there's cases dissimilar to what it's seen, it can't make the best call, but it can also report that, that, hey, this is a very unfamiliar person. This person has very sparse data prior to this admission, et cetera, et cetera. That's sort of the classical problem in predictive analytics, but where it gets more interesting and more nuanced is in what we call unsupervised learning. And in this case, you're not telling the model exactly what it is that you're looking for, but you're asking for it to make decisions, to make suggestions. And what we might do in something like this instead is sort of a classic in advertising is group all of these people based on what you've seen them do in the past. And so if I grouped members in an at-risk population based on how they've been utilizing services, what I'm generally asking it to do is sort of create clumps, let them naturally size themselves. And you might find that there are 10 to 15 natural groupings among your membership. And when you sort of describe that out in this process, it's let's call it k-means clustering, what you find is that, oh, well, this group tends to be people within this age band who have this many conditions or maybe just you know, one or two that are extremely common. And the model, it doesn't know that. It just knows that these are the people that look alike. And we've used this to sort of build up personas, to build up models of members who are like each other. And then you can look at their trajectories and see what has worked for this type of member, what has not worked for this type of member. And that's been an extremely powerful use case for us as well in the utilization and cost space when you're thinking about sort of member or patient engagement and the best means to encourage self-management, the best ways to direct your outreach and coordinate your care. Hey guys, sorry to interrupt, but we wanted to let you know about a way you can support Hit Like a Girl podcast directly. We've partnered with patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, as a way for us to connect with our listeners and fans in a direct way and ask them to support us so we can continue creating more great content like this episode you're listening to. Patreon.com is not so much of a one-time contribution, but more like a subscription to provide support to independent creators like us. Patrons who pledge even just $2 a month give us the stability we need to continue producing podcast episodes. In return for your patronage, we're offering virtual high fives, personalized thank you notes, and even shout outs on our episodes. When you become a patron of Hit Like a Girl podcast, you're supporting our channel directly so we won't be making podcast episodes for some viral audience or for ads. We're making them for you, our listeners. This allows us to focus on topics related to women, healthcare, and technology. With your support on patreon.com, we're able to spend that time having meaningful conversations and doing more great work that can positively impact the lives of other women in healthcare and tech. So join us on patreon.com and let's make something amazing together. 
Can you talk a little bit about how life has changed and really thinking about the risk stratification and perhaps even the models or, you know, what's going into these different personas in the wake of COVID? Absolutely. So unfortunately, because I work with a lot of claims data, I tend to be time delayed. But I can tell you that within my organization, what's been interesting is seeing where the blind spots in our data have been and how we are working around that. So first and foremost, use cases around availability of beds and supplies like ventilators in real time has become extremely important. Understanding where resources are going has also become extremely important. But from a utilization and cost perspective, this concept of risk stratification is also very meaningful because when you are caring for populations at scale, you need to know sort of that snap judgment of in the next 10 minutes, if I can make only a handful of outreaches, who should I reach out to? Stratification has always been extremely powerful for that, for that I have 10 minutes for a phone call. I have 10 minutes to reassure my membership about something. Risk stratification brings members to the top. But again, among those who, let's say, have um, had a positive uh, test result, you can also sort of anticipate their trajectory by looking for similar cases. And so that case similarity to me is an extremely powerful use case for unsupervised learning, sort of personifying the person who has had a positive diagnosis and whether they look like someone you have treated in the past and how you can pursue treatment that is either similar or dissimilar to that same patient. I have not pursued that particular use case, but I see the viability of a model for that. Corinne, and speaking of things you're kind of looking towards, you know, our next question is really around if you could, it's really a wish, if you could do anything in healthcare or health IT and accomplish anything, resources, money, no, no bounds, and this question, what would it be and why? This is a hard one because my brain lights up with all of these ways that we could potentially be doing better. But what has been top of mind for me is sort of the democracy of data and how HIPAA has relaxed a little bit over the last few weeks to allow for more rapid communication. But what I'm finding are some of the things that weighed me down when I worked in pure device space was sort of that paperwork that I don't want to say bureaucracy, but the necessary boxes to check. I feel as though in the world of rapidly generated information, that perhaps those policies haven't followed or kept pace the way that they could. And, you know, I think about all of the incremental permissions that I give to applications on my phone when I download them, and yet very rarely am I asked to do that with my healthcare data. I would be very happy to share my data in the appropriate use cases when I understand the disclosures. But the most I ever get is on an office visit, you know, just a reminder of HIPAA practices and how data is used by your practice in that office. But I would love to see that more reviewed in light of, you know, now we have all these consumer inputs as well. You know, we're opening a lot of, as I keep mentioning, ethical hazards, but I think that the benefits could outweigh that. So if I knew as a clinician some of the consumption habits of my patient, not for me to pass judgment, but for me to sort of consume that as the larger view or understanding of my member or that patient, it, it adds a lot to the way that I would render care if I understand sort of not the details of what they're watching, but you know how many hours a day are they watching TV or how often are they getting outside? This is all social determinant data, that non-clinical data that is extremely important in understanding a person's full healthcare status. But because of current laws and because of the way that we've implemented and treated health IT, 
not as necessarily a consumer space, we're missing out on the chance to learn from all of this. You know, you make a really interesting point, but one thing that I've heard is that if somebody were to be given all that data, that they would just be completely overwhelmed. Like I've heard over and over again, like your doctor doesn't want to know your hit your Fitbit data or you know how many steps you necessarily took. However, but thinking about you know like how much TV is somebody consuming or how many steps they do get a day or what is their mental health state, especially in these times, I would imagine would actually be really insightful into their overall health and perhaps you know offer opportunities to make suggestions of, you know, slight changes here and there that could improve their their health. Exactly. So what you've caught on is it's not the raw data that is valuable to the clinician. It's the ever so slight perturbations in the way that that data is being obtained. So if you're if your clinician knows that in general this is where so classic sort of telemonitoring use case if we know that your weight has changed you know more than five pounds and all of a sudden you're adding a lot of water volume that triggers potential problems in sort of what is the burden on your heart and how effectively are you moving fluid or eliminating fluid so now take some of that in what we generate in sort of the wearables or even the behavioral health space if you tend to report a certain way and we see an unexpected or a series of unexpected results, that's when you take notice. So does my doctor need to know that on average, I walk seven to 12,000 steps a day? Maybe that's like one nice metric that comes alongside my vitals on an office visit. But what he should know is what happens where there's three or four days in a row where it doesn't seem like I'm getting out of bed, or it doesn't seem like I'm continuing in sort of what is anticipated for me. And so now we're getting into more topics around statistics and sort of control limits of There's the expected and then there's the unexpected. And then there's also the psycho-emotional element of, well, this is what people like you tend to do and this is where you're disjoint from that. And so I've commonly seen this used in the provider performance realm where we say, here's, you know, your use of opioids among your population. Similar prescribers use, you know, this equivalent of morphine milligrams or MMEs. We can apply that among patients and we can say that, again, if we look back to that comparison, among members with a similar disease burden in similar social circumstances, this is what you should expect to see for this member. Is there a chance that this information can be used for better coaching or better management? Because when we think about what little time we have with each encounter in the healthcare system, you have to make use of the best information that you can either obtain at that moment in time or that you can glean from the large amounts of data that have been collected by other systems. I think what you guys are both collectively saying in this wish is, and Corinne, you're hitting on this and articulating it so beautifully, we're not collecting this transactional data to cloud the record. We're using it to inform clinically or more holistically in bringing back that transactional data into meaningful remarks or clinical insights to help guide care. That's right. And the phrase that we always use at Kensai is that, you know, we're not here to give you conclusive answers. We're here to be another arrow in your quiver, another tool that you use when you are interacting as somewhere along the line between the, the patient and the provider engagement. It's just another input. I imagine at this point in time, if we had a history of that amount of data for all the kinds of people, I mean, everyone is going through so many different life changes at the moment and just like getting used to sort of sheltering in place or not having the normal that they're used to. I can only imagine what insights would come out of all of that data that's current. Absolutely. And, you know, even then we're building a new normal. A lot of the models around things like hospital volume, when we're not getting elective surgeries anymore, 
those all go into stasis and we have to build new models. Now, when we think about demand on emergency rooms, demand on ICUs, it's very different from where we were four or five months ago. So that's something we've been thinking about and we're just starting to turn the corner of, you know, what is the new normal? When do people start going back in and obtaining that preventative care? Will we see a continued adoption of telehealth and that sort of if I can be distant, I will remain distant. And, you know, when can we anticipate seeing the same? Think about all of the curves that you've seen related to when will peak happen in your state, but then it becomes when will elective events happen again in your state, in your healthcare practice, in your hospital? I think that's a really, really good point. Corinne, in trying to keep up with everything going on in healthcare, medicine, AI, what are you reading? Where do you go to get your information and stay abreast of what the pulse of things in this industry? Gosh, it's actually been overwhelming because, you know, normally I would do my Twitter, I would do my LinkedIn, and I have some very core newsletters that I get. In general, what I find from a machine learning perspective is there's a great one by MIT called The Algorithm, and that's part of the MIT Tech Review. And what I like about this is that it's not specific to healthcare. Instead, it's looking at, you know, what are the use cases that are popping up? It's looking at, you know, here's a primer on unsupervised learning or on GANs. What I also love is the things that it, you know, catches me onto that I didn't think about previously. Like they just did a great one on the chance of a machine learning model to game its outcome because it realizes what you're testing it on and it just moves immediately to that instead of actually trying to solve the problem. It just solves for the outcome of interest. It doesn't solve the problem, which I think is amazing. That being said, so you kind of have the the core machine learning and, and technology reads that I have, but then in the healthcare space, I'm always a fan of Becker's. I'm a fan of, geez, I'm looking at my inbox right now, eHealth Initiative. I'm looking at healthcare IT today. There are just tons that I read. And speaking of, you know, taking holistic view of everything that machines understand about us. I also now have a bunch that just based on my phone, if I swipe left, I see top news and it knows what I like and it knows what I've read before. And so it immediately starts to recommend to me, you know, five data science skills that you can learn through COVID data, or it might say something like, here's a great data visualization that's trending right now. And it knows that those are topics that I tend to dabble in, but these would be my primary inputs. I spend a good 20% of my time reading and learning and trending on what's happening outside of just my organization and my work of interest because it's changing every day and times like this more than ever. I can only imagine. Well, you are one of the brightest people that, I mean, just in talking with you, can just tell how much you have coming across your plate and how much you're also able to like kick back into the world. So if people wanted to reach out and pick your brain or find a way to work with you or the folks over at Kensai, how would they do so? Great question. So I'm Corinne at Kensai.com, spelled C-O-R-I-N-N-E at Kensai, K-E-N-S-C-I.com. I go by Health Cora on Twitter, Cora spelled with uh, C-O-R-A, and then on LinkedIn, you can also find me as Corinne Strom, last name is spelled S-T-R-O-U-M. I love all kinds of conversations in this vein. I actually did something really neat this past spring. I did my first time teaching. So I've done big proponent of continued ed. I've done two certificate programs since I finished my master's, and I anticipate that I will continue to do so for the remainder of my career, but this was my first time teaching. And so any opportunity that I have to 
coach, to mentor, to provide resume, you know, review. I love that. Help find, you know, the right role for you or how you frame your next step in healthcare and health IT. So definitely ping me with any of these topics and I am happy to chat with you about them. Awesome. 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 Thank you so much for your contribution. And we will absolutely be in touch with you even more so on the mentorship side, because you seem like somebody who would be love to pick your brain more and get any of your feedback. Well, thank you for your time today. We really appreciate getting to know you a little bit better and we will be in touch. Great. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. If you want to know more about us or this guest, check out our website at hitlikeagirlpod.com. While you're at it, if you found value in this episode, we'd appreciate a ratings on iTunes or simply tell a friend. You can also connect with us on Twitter or Instagram at the handle hitlikeagirlpod. Thanks again. See you soon. Thank you to Chirpy Bird Health IT Consulting. You can find out more about them at www.chirpybirdinc.com.